0: everyone and to be in this new facility. I mean, this is amazing. Is that shiplap back there? Is that what, is that shiplap? You guys, HGTV people, you're getting that. And so, anyways, and so this is, this is wonderful. And so we're going to be looking at a very interesting passage this morning that has a New Testament parallel. We're going to be looking at Numbers chapter 21. So numbers chapter 21. This is a very interesting passage. Um, and what's so interesting about it is, in the most famous verse in all the Bible, OK? John 3:16, right in the midst of Jesus explaining who He is to Nicodemus, and he looks for a picture to explain who he is and what he came to do, he points to numbers 21, and this very weird incident in the Old Testament. There's a lot of weird stuff in the Old Testament, but this is pretty, pretty odd. And so let's look at Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9, and then we're going to flip over to John chapter 3 and read a little section there, okay? So Numbers 21, starting in verse 4, and then we're going to flip over to John chapter 3. Numbers 21, verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around to the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people uh, came to Moses and said, and live, John chapter three, and verse seven. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him and said. Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Look at verse 14. And Moses, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this passage that is filled with amazing truth about your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we have placed. Our trust. And God, I pray that even today, that just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, that your Son would be lifted up and that all who look to him would live. I pray that that we would learn, above all things, to look to your Son so that we could have life. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I've already mentioned, this is a weird passage. I mean, it has baffled readers for centuries. Yet, again, when Jesus is searching for an illustration to explain what it means to believe in him and to be born again, he points to Numbers 21. Jesus said that if you want to understand him and the salvation that he brings, you have to look to the serpent lifted up in the wilderness. So, this story, what is it about? Really, the story is about healing. Okay, if you look at Numbers 21, it's all about healing. And, and we see there 's a sickness that needs to be healed, and there are preparation or preps that need that need to happen before you get the medicine and then there's the medicine that will bring the healing and that 's what and then we 're going to learn how to get it okay so if you 're following along if you 're taking notes, those are my points right there's a sickness, there are preps for treatment there's the medicine, and then there's how to take the medicine okay and, and all of these things we see in this passage we see an illness among the people of God, and let's, let's take a look at that. Number one, point number one is the sickness. The children of Israel are going through the wilderness, and they begin, they begin to complain. Shock of shocks, right? The people of Israel complaining, okay? And uh, they begin to complain about the food, which is a pretty normal thing for people to do in evangelical churches, right? To complain about the food, right? And uh, of course, as you well know, this isn't just any food. Okay, this isn't just any food. The food that they're complaining about is manna. God had rescued the people out of slavery in Egypt, and they're traveling through the desert on their way to the promised land. And there's no food in the desert, okay? They've left Egypt. They're on their way to the promised land, and there is no food. There is, you can't plant anything in the desert. There's no animals just wandering around. I mean, the people need God's special provision. I mean, there is no way for their life to be sustained, so God sends them this manna every morning, this is an amazing blessing from God. This was a special bread. This was God's miraculous provision in the wilderness. It's bread from heaven, and they hate it. It says, we loathe this miserable food. They detest this amazing gift from God. And as a result, into the camp come what the English Bible calls fiery serpents which is a literal translation of the Hebrew. It's actually seraphs, right? Seraphs is what they're called. And they're called fiery serpents not because, like, they were on fire, like they're actually fiery snakes, right? That would be super cool if they were, but they weren't, okay? Um, they're, They're called fiery serpents not because they are on fire, but because they set you on fire, okay? And this is the way these type of snakes worked. When you were bitten by one of these fiery snakes... Um, there was the fiery hot inflamed swelling where you were bit but then eventually what it led to was a raging fever and an uncontrollable thirst and what would actually happen is people would have this fiery unquenchable thirst and and they would actually die of this burning fever you could drink all the water that you wanted and your thirst could not be quenched and the people would actually die of fever and thirst Isn't that fascinating, right? Now, the first knee-jerk response for modern readers, I mean, if you're honest with yourself, is to say, this is an overreaction, okay? I mean, come on. I mean, maybe they were wrong. I mean, maybe these guys were jerks, right? But I mean, this is over the top. I mean, all they did was bellyache about the food, right? I mean, do they really deserve all of this? I mean, do they really deserve to die? And I believe that... If we look more closely at the text, and commentators point this out, professional Bible guys, right, point this out, that this is actually perfectly appropriate. The punishment actually perfectly fits the crime. And what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, look at the complaint. Okay, what are they complaining about? They... It says they detest, they loathe manna. And manna was this amazing gift. It was something that God sent every day. And it said it was a sweet resin. It could be made into flour and you could bake it into bre- bread and cakes. It was as sweet as honey. It could be made into pastries. Maybe you could make ba manna bread, right? Get it? <laughs> nice. Okay, okay. It, it, could, it, it could be made into all kinds of things. And it, and it came down every single day in the midst of the howling, wilderness it was a direct miraculous wonderful daily testimony to god's power and his commitment to them and though at first i mean they were incredibly grateful if you look at the original account right when it was first given to them, they were so grateful but now they've grown to hate it we loathe this worthless food So what's what's going on here? What's actually happening? Let me take you to another example in the Bible of where the same principle is going on. Actually, the original, the original example of this exact thing. Let's go back to paradise. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden. Right in Genesis chapters one through three, it tells us that we were in paradise at the beginning of time. We were in paradise. The Bible says everything was perfect. There was no sadness there was no sickness, there was no death, everything is perfect. And guess what? God says, you can do anything you want. You can do anything that you want, well, except one thing, right? You can't eat from that that one tree over there, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You can do anything you want, but there's the one, there's the one, you can't eat from that one tree. And and, and guess what? It's paradise. It's perfect. There's perfect provision. There's no work. There's no toil. Everything is great. And into the garden comes, get this, a serpent. And, and this is how the conversation goes. The serpent says, hey, uh, how are you guys doing here? How's it working out for you? And Eve says, well, it's perfect. It's perfect. There's nothing wrong, you know. There's no disease. There's no sadness of any sort. And we can do anything we want. It's paradise. This is wonderful. And the serpent said, well, I mean, anything you want? I mean, anything at all? You, you can do absolutely everything? Well, <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, there's, there's one thing we can't do. There's that, that one tree that we can't eat from. And the serpent says, and you're satisfied with the situation? I bet you, I bet you anything that that tree is 100 times better than all the other trees put together. I bet you that the fruit of that tree will make you just as smart and just as knowledgeable as God. And that's why he doesn't want you, idiot. He is holding back something from you that you really need. And when that spiritual venom of that serpent passed into the hearts and souls of God's people, when an unwillingness to trust God passed into their hearts and souls, an all consuming, unquenchable discontent and thirst began. In other words, paradise itself was not good enough for the human heart. We were not happy with the Garden of Eden. We had to have something more. In other words, this is what the Bible teaches. Deep in the center of every human being, in the center of every human soul, is a deep interior dislocation. Okay, And whenever a bone is dislocated... Okay, it's not on the center of the joint. What happens when it's not in the socket? There's pain, there's, there's discomfort, there's, there's tearing, there's trauma, there's damage, there's loss of function. And so every human soul is dislocated from God. Every human soul is not by nature centered on God. And so there's pain and there's tearing and there's loss of function. As a result, there is in our center infinite discontent, uncontrollable discontent, infinite dissatisfaction. And this is why the num- the author of Numbers 21 is showing us very clearly. There's this incredible correlation between the punishment and the, and the crime. There's no disproportion between what they did and what they got. What's happening in their body is exactly what was happening in their soul. Do you see? These people had an unquenchable thirst that couldn't be satisfied with paradise in the Garden of Eden, with bread from heaven, with water from a rock. Nothing was good enough for these people. And so that unquenchable thirst in their souls happened in their bodies. That burning, unsatisfiable thirst they're experiencing as a result of the serpent's bite is a perfect picture of the unsatisfiable thirst in their souls. And the relatively minor curable poison of that serpent in their body was an exact mirror image of the greater poison of the serpent in their soul that was really killing them in other words in every single one of us there's a raging thirst there's an unquenchable all-consuming thirst that will eventually if it's not dealt with if there's not some kind of supernatural intervention in your life you'll find nothing good enough I mean, it will make you unhappy with anything. Food from heaven, paradise itself, you will never be satisfied. That is the nature of sin. The nature of sin is to never be satisfied with anything. You have, I have, we have an infinite capacity for boredom. I mean, we'll play on our smartphones at the Grand Canyon, right? Oh, yeah, that's pretty cool. Oh, Candy Crush, right? Whatever. I don't know. Is that a game? That's a thing, right? Okay. So Farmville, I don't know. I don't know. So we have an infinite capacity for irritability with anything, even the best things. In this syndrome, this sickness that we have, it moves faster and it develops faster and it's more... I guess it's more pronounced if you're really successful. Did you know that? This is really interesting. That's why celebrities, right, are always these perfect pictures of utter, like, total train wrecks in their lives because they get everything they ever wanted and they realize they're empty on the inside, right? When you're really successful, when you actually get everything that you want, you you can realize, I have a bottomless pit in me. I mean, there's a black hole in me. There's an infinite vacuum in me. And no matter what I put in, no matter what I put in there, at first it's great. And then I hate it. At first, you know, she's great. She's wonderful. She's all I ever wanted. And then, you know, she's kind of asking me to take out the trash and change the baby. And I don't really like that that much, you know? And, and we have this infinite, we have this infinite ability to, to find fault and to become dissatisfied. There was a guy named Boris Becker. He was one of the most famous tennis players who ever lived. He's, he's still alive. And, um, There was this really amazing interview where he's looking back on his life and he said that when he was at the height of his power, when he was at the height of his achievement and fame, he wanted to kill himself. Now, why is that? Because he got all the things he ever wanted and he still felt empty. He said this, I'd won Wimbledon twice, once as the youngest person to ever do it. He was 17 years old, by the way. I was rich. I had all the material possessions I needed. (laughs) I guess it's the old song of movie stars and pop stars who commit suicide. They have everything, and yet they are so unhappy. It's true. I had nothing on the inside. He says he achieved everything he had ever wanted. All his dreams came true, and it wasn't enough. Why is that? Because the poison that's in our hearts. It goes faster if you're successful, but we're all on our way. Unless there is a cure, unless there is medicine, unless there is a treatment, unless there is some kind of intervention, we're all on our way to being unhappy with anything, with everything, right? I mean, we have a brand new sanctuary here, right? Just wait two months, right? Just wait two years, right? I mean, the wood paneling, I mean, I guess it was kind of cool, right? But I don't know. I mean, is it really shiplap up there, you know? And so, I mean, just just wait a couple of years. Just wait a couple of months, right? Just wait. You can find fault with anything. Nothing will be good enough. And this is the reason why we always have to have the newest and best thing, right? I mean, you've got the iPhone 6, then the iPhone 6S. My old iPhone is so lame, right? Okay. I mean... And this is the reason why some people like never get married, right? Because they're always finding fault with every person they ever date and interact with. Or they're, they're unhappy with every person they try. This is the reason why some of us are so unhappy with our job, right? You know, we're like, well, and, and at first you wanted it, right? It was this huge gift to get it. You applied, you won, and you interviewed, and yay, I got the job. And you tweet about it and put it on Facebook and you call your relatives. And then a year later, I hate my job. This is the worst job. This is so lame. I can't believe it. My boss, he's such a jerk, right? And, and these things that seem like such huge gifts to us become a burden to us. And, and we're never gonna be happy with our jobs. We're never gonna be happy with our spouse. We're never, gonna, we're never gonna be happy unless there's a cure. This is the reason why some of us are so unhappy with ourselves and so down on other people and so down on everybody else. This is why some of you always hate the way you look. You will never be satisfied unless there is a cure. There's something in your center that's sick. There's something in my center that's sick. There's a poison in us. There's a raging fever. There's an all-consuming, unquenchable fire that consumes anything you put in in there. Bread from heaven? You'll get bored with it. Paradise itself? You know, paradise is kind of lame. I mean... (laughs) There's no Netflix in Eden, right? I mean, what are we, we going to do with ourselves, right? And so it's not good enough, and it never will be good enough until we get some treatment. That's the sickness, you see. That's the sickness. There's a perfect correlation between what's happening in their body in this passage and what was happening in their soul. What was happening in their body isn't anywhere near as serious as what was happening in their soul. And by the way, if I can make a little side note, Christians... This is one of the most practical things you can ever possibly learn, okay? The nature of sin is to make you never satisfied, to always find something wrong no matter what. And there's nothing more practical than to sit down and say, all right, I do have a bad boss. Okay, I don't have the best job. Okay, I don't have the perfect spouse. I mean, I have the perfect spouse. But you might say, I don't have the perfect spouse. Okay, I don't have the best figure, right? Okay, we, we don't have a full-time teaching pastor, right? Things aren't perfect. Okay, I have this or that problem. I don't, I, 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 I mean, I have this or that bad situation. I have this or that circumstance. I admit that it's bad. This is bad, But if I were in the garden of Eden today with the heart that I've got, I'd find something wrong. That's the truth. And so you better start with yourself. You better start with your heart. You better start with yourself. Because what we try to do is we try to change our circumstances, right? Find a new spouse, find a new job, find a new whatever. We try to change our circumstances, but really we need to look at our hearts. Because if you were in the Garden of Eden today, with the heart that you've got, you would get bored. You would find something wrong. And I'm not saying that your circumstances don't have something to do with why you're unhappy. I mean, hey, maybe, maybe you do need to sometimes change some of your circumstances. But the root problem is, is that you're going to find something wrong with anyone, with anything, with any situation. I mean, Jesus could be the teaching pastor of your church, right? When Jesus was alive and walking around on earth, guess what? A lot of people didn't like him. His own disciples found problems with him, okay? So, you've got to realize you've got to look at yourself not just your circumstances there's nothing more practical on the day when you say why am I so grumpy I mean why am I so unhappy why does my life seem so meaningless why am I so bored you have to say if I were in the garden of Eden today with the heart that I've got I would find something wrong with that therefore I need to work on my heart so that's the sickness. There's this incredible correlation between the punishment and the crime. What was happening in their bodies was a picture of the deeper problem in their souls. So the first thing is the sickness. The second thing we see is, before the healing, the, there are two things in the text that are preparation. Okay? So you've got the sickness and then you've got the preps. Right? Like if you're going in for surgery, you're going in for a major procedure, there's often preps before the treatment. Right? there are, There are preparations to get you ready to receive the treatment, and you know in this passage, we see two preparations for healing. The first one is trouble, trouble before they can get this healing, they went into trouble and I know this text is a troubling for a lot of people for a lot of reasons, but notice this important point, okay See this principle the principle of that is is They did not see what was wrong with them until they got sick. Do you see that? They didn't see the problem with their hearts. They did not confess their sin. They did not receive the healing until they started to die, okay? They didn't see what was really killing them until they started to die. They didn't see the poison in their souls, so they had to have the poison in their bodies. And unfortunately, that's the same for you and me. You and I almost never wake up to our need... We almost never really see what's wrong. We're almost never willing to admit the diagnosis until something goes wrong in our lives. All of your wisdom, and if you think about your life, you'll know this, almost all your wisdom, almost all spiritual growth, all this stuff happens because something comes up in your life and wakes you up and forces you to go to the great physician. Maybe you lose your job, right? Maybe your spouse leaves you. Maybe your child starts to rebel, right? Or maybe you just have a child, period, right? I mean, having a child, like, woke me up to the fact that I was impatient, that I was selfish, that I was impatient, right? <laughs> and so and it's, I didn't realize how 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 black my heart was until I had this screaming, you know, thing in my life, right? Two of them, actually. And so, it it wakes you up. But the prep for the healing of any spiritual trouble, uh, for any spiritual problem, is trouble. Material trouble, circumstantial trouble, social trouble, economic trouble, or physical trouble. Some other kind of trouble in our lives wakes us up to our real condition. C.S. Lewis said this, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Pain and trouble is God's megaphone into your life. God's using his megaphone loud and clear here in Numbers 21, and and maybe he's using his megaphone in your life right now, right? He's screaming into your ear, hey, you've got some issues, right? And and that's the first prerequisite, is the first prep is, is trouble that wakes you up. And let me take a, take a little minute to talk about this. You know, some of you might still be thinking, but yeah, come on. I mean, they belly ached about the food, and now they're dying, right? They complained about the food in the cafeteria, and the principle is have them executed, right? So that's like... It's like, you can gripe about, like, you know, the, the casserole at the potluck, but we don't, like, beat you to death over it, right? You know, and so, and so what, what's going on? I mean, this seems unfair. What's, what's the deal? Well, the answer is, I wouldn't know how to do this right? If you came to me and said, hey, could you please teach an entire nation of people a major spiritual lesson so that it sticks and they're not spiritually destroyed, can you just go ahead and do that, right? I'd like go to Google and be like, how do you teach a major spirit? Too many words, no results, what do I do, right? And so I couldn't even begin to do that. I couldn't even begin to do that, but God can, right? God can do it, and he did do it. I wouldn't know how to teach an entire nation a lesson without hurting some individuals, but but God can do it, right? And God did do it, as we'll see. I mean, nobody died who died on the wrong day, okay? God is perfectly in control, and you say, man, that isn't fair, right? It doesn't seem fair. Well, guess what? God doesn't actually operate on the basis of fair and not fair. He always does what is right and what is just and what is is the righteous thing to do. And so, but But God was able to teach the people of Israel a lesson without being unfair to any particular individuals because he is God, he is all-wise, he is all-loving, he is sovereign, he's in control. So don't let your concerns, which are understandable, hijack you and make you miss the really important point this passage is making. Trouble is the first preparation for spiritual healing. But the second preparation for spiritual healing is the end of blame-shifting, okay? This is what the Bible calls repentance, repentance. Isn't it interesting that when they come to Moses, they say, we sinned against the Lord. We sinned against the Lord. Notice they did not say, yeah, we sinned, but come on, this is ridiculous, right? I mean, mean, if you ate manna for like, 40 years in a row, you'd get tired of it too, right? I mean, all we did was complain about the food, right? They didn't do that. They didn't shift any blame. They didn't point any fingers. They didn't make a plea bargain. They pled guilty, right? They said, we have sinned. There is no blame shifting. There is no excuse making. They owned up to their fault. And And they know that their problems are self-induced. There's not a word of excuse. There's not a word of blame shifting. They say, we sinned. So spiritual healing starts when blame shifting stops, and not until then. And so it's easy for us to make half-hearted apologies and half-hearted repentance. You know, like, I'm sorry that you were offended, right? (laughs) It's like, it's not actually apologizing, right? I'm sorry that... No, it's... you. You need to stop blame shifting. You know, well, I was just really tired and I had a long week and, I, you know, none of that is going on. Spiritual healing starts when blame shifting stops. This is true repentance, okay? So here are the two preparations. Trouble that wakes you up and the end of blame shifting. But what's the treatment, right? What is the actual medicine itself? And that's my third point. We saw the sickness, the preps, and now we see the medicine. The medicine, And this is the weirdest, oddest, most confusing, puzzling possible thing. Of all things God could possibly tell Moses to do to bring healing, this takes the cake, right? God says, okay, you know that thing that's killing everybody? Make a giant image of that, the murderous, venomous, horrible snakes that's terrorizing a community. Make a giant bronze serpent and put it up on a pole and have people come look at it. Right now, if you just think about it for two seconds, like there's all kinds of reasons why that doesn't make sense, okay, First of all, it doesn't work psychologically. I mean, how in the world would it be of any help or comfort to go look at the a huge representation of the thing that's killing you I mean What could be more demoralizing than that? Of course, surely some people would see the thing and just burst into tears. Like, you know, they would be afraid of it. So psychologically it doesn't work, but also theologically it doesn't work. Because the serpent, okay, the serpent in Israel represented evil. It represented sin because, because of the original account of sin in Genesis 1 through 3. Also, a serpent was an unclean animal according to the Levitical law. According to Leviticus 11, you couldn't uh, eat it or touch it. Serpents were unclean. And so theologically, it made no sense. It represented sin. It represented evil. It was, it was unclean. So why was it up there? Why make an image of the thing that's killing everyone the thing that makes you healed? And a possible answer is that the bronze serpent represents all of the serpents, okay? Represents all of the serpents. All the disease, all the pain, all the death are gathered into one object, one serpent. They're all focused. They're concentrated in this one serpent and the serpent is held up as defeated, dead, pierced, and transfixed on a pole. All the death, all the curse, all the punishment is concentrated in the bronze serpent and it's held up as taken away by God's mercy. Matthew Henry wrote this, that which cured was shaped in the likeness of that which wounded. And the people looked and the poison was taken away. And that's a possible answer, right? Just considering from the Old Testament all by itself, that's a possible answer. But ultimately, of course, they probably never figured it out. Like why with the serpent thing? Like what is going on there? They probably never fully figured it out. I mean, Moses probably didn't, but we can because centuries later, Jesus Christ is right in the middle of his most famous talk with Nicodemus. It's, it's in John 3. In John 3 is Jesus giving his most famous exposition of who he is. I mean, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he, that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Right? I mean, that is the most famous verse in all the Bible But right smack in the middle of Jesus trying to explain who he is to the world and to Nicodemus and to us, he says, it's like, you know what? It's like the serpent in the wilderness. What that was, I am. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What that was, I am. Now, how in the world could Jesus be like the bronze serpent? And the answer is found in a little verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says this, For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, what does that mean? God made Jesus, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. What does that mean? That God made Jesus to be sin. Now, it can't mean that God made him sinful, right? Because when Jesus was on the cross, he didn't become hateful. He didn't become cruel. He didn't do any of that. No, to his very dying breath, he was asking God to forgive those people who were killing him. So Jesus didn't become sinful on the cross and he didn't become a sinner on the cross. On the cross... He became sin. What does that mean? It means he became legally the, the serpent. Legally, he became evil. Sin itself. He got what the serpent deserves. He got what evil and sin deserves. He got what our sin deserves. All the disease... All the pain, all the death, all the curse due to sin was placed upon him. All the sins of his people were placed upon and concentrated in him. All of the sins of his people were punished in him. And so see this. On the cross, one of the things that Jesus said was, I thirst. He got the poison the all consuming thirst of infinite dissatisfaction he got the punishment for our sin he was on the, when when jesus was on the cross he said god why have you forsaken me he got the hell of eternal dislocation because that's what hell is hell is god turning his back on you it's, it's total separation from all the goodness and the smiling face of God, right? And that's what Jesus got on the cross. It all fell on him. He got the poison. He got it, he felt it, he experienced it so that we could be healed. He got what we deserved so that we could be healed. Isaiah 53 talks about the Messiah and says, he carried our diseases and by his stripes we are healed. And so, how was Jesus like the bronze serpent? He was judged, he was condemned, and if you look to him, you are healed. And some people might say, yeah, that's all very moving and interesting, right? But, I mean, why all the bloody cross and punishment and stuff? Why can't God have just forgiven people without having to have his son die on a cross, right? I mean, and you know what, that's actually... That's actually a really good question, right? And a lot of people have it, so I want to spend a minute to talk about it, okay? So why can't God just forgive, right? Why can't God, like, just forgive? I mean, right? I mean, he's like God. Can't he just, like, forgive sin and, like, sweep it under the rug? Well, the reason why God can't just forgive is because nobody can just forgive. Why does God need payment? Why can't he just forgive? Because nobody can so when someone wrongs or sins, there's always a cost and always a loss. Always. If you've wronged somebody, you've sinned against somebody in a serious way, there's, there's a loss and there's always a cost that either you, the wronger, or they will have to bear or... Or the forgiver will have to bear that cost. But it doesn't just go away. And my favorite example to use is this. If you're over in my house for some reason, right, you're hanging out, and you accidentally knock over and break my lamp. My favorite lamp, okay? You knock over and break my lamp. I can either say, "Ho ho! ho, ho you're going to have to pay for that, right? You're, you're going to have to pay for that. Or, or I can say, oh, you know what, don't worry about it. It's an old lamp, no big deal right so either i can make you pay for it or i can forgive you and say no that's okay that's okay i forgive you don't worry about it but either i pay the cost by having to buy my own lamp and replace it or I bear the cost by not buying a lamp and having darkness in the room or whatever, right? And so so either you pay for it or I pay for it but the cost of the lamp doesn't just vanish into thin air, right? Either I forgive you and I bear the cost I absorb the cost or I don't forgive you and you bear the cost, Right? In other words, either you bear the cost or I bear the cost. There's no such thing as just forgiving. If I forgive you, it's going to cost me at least, you know, 19.95 down at Target to buy a new lamp, okay? If the cost of the lamp, the cost of the lamp doesn't just disappear. I can forgive you. And if I forgive you, I forgive you by bearing the cost. I, and if I don't forgive you, you bear the cost, but somebody pays. And this is, this is true even if it's not a monetary issue. If you've damaged someone's reputation, if you've talked bad about them behind their back, and, and you go up to them and say, you know, I, I'm so sorry, can you please forgive me? Right? They can say, no, I'm not going to forgive you. I'm going to go and tell everyone about what you did. And then, in that way, you bear the cost because they ruined your reputation to restore theirs. Right? Or they say, you know what? It's okay. Don't worry about it. And then they bear the cost by, you know, just taking the hit. The point is, nobody just forgives. The forgiver always bears the cost, absorbs the cost, absorbs the loss. So how does God forgive us? How does God forgive us? How is it possible for God to forgive us our sins, yet leave no guilt unpunished? How does God do that? He lifts up Jesus on the cross and he absorbs the debt into himself. Do you see that? That's how God forgives us. He lifts Jesus up. The way that God forgave us is by absorbing the cost into himself. All the sin, all the evil, all the sin of all of his people was absorbed. By Jesus. Jesus had to be lifted up. He had to endure the infinite thirst. He had to endure the internal dislocation. He had to get the ultimate spiritual cosmic, cosmic unquenchable fire in his bones. He had to experience hell on the cross. He took the penalty upon himself. He absorbed the cost, and that's the medicine. Jesus lifted up, absorbing the weight of sin for all of mankind but how do we get it? Right, that's the medicine, but how do we get the medicine? And that's my final point. We saw the sickness. We saw the preps for treatment. We saw the medicine. Now, how do we take the medicine? How do we take the medicine? You see, Jesus Christ is talking to Nicodemus, and as you read him talking about the serpent in the wilderness, it goes like this. Nicodemus said to him, well, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, what I love about this is Jesus is not just calling Nicodemus to get forgiven. He's calling him to be born again, okay? That's totally different and, and the reason for that and the reason it's very appropriate that he uses the Numbers 21 reference is that we don't only need to be forgiven we need to be repaired we need to be healed we need to be we need to be changed you don't only need forgiveness because you're not only guilty you're also damaged there's something wrong with us see you don't only need to be pardoned you need a new birth you need to be made new you need to be healed And these folks, when they came to Moses, right, in in Numbers 21, when they came to Moses and confessed their sin, and they confessed their sin, they weren't just forgiven, right? They were also healed. Could you imagine Moses saying, you know what? You're forgiven. Go in peace, right? And then they still died of the poison, right? Okay, thanks, Moses. (laughs) And they, you know, died. So that would be horrible, right? But they got forgiveness and healing, and Jesus Christ says, what you need, what we what we need, is not simply to be pardoned. You need to be healed of your soul sickness. And there is a medicine that will cause you to be born again, that will actually change you. And this is all throughout the New Testament, right? I don't know if you remember the story of the paralytic carried on the mat, right? In Mark chapter two, right? Jesus is preaching in a house and they like open up the roof and they lower the guy down. And Jesus looks, and what do you think, just think about this, what do you think the guy wanted more than anything in the world? He's a paralytic on a mat. He cannot walk. What do you think he wants more than anything in life? What do you think he's saying to himself? If I could just... What what do you think the guy wants? He wants to walk again, right? The paralytic wants to walk again. He's probably thinking to himself, if I could just walk again, I would never be unhappy again. If I could just walk again, I'd be so happy. If I could just walk again, but what does Jesus turn to him and say? Son... Your sins are forgiven. And you're like, <laughs> I mean, if it was one of us there, we'd be like, yeah, thanks, Jesus, but I uh, kind of have a more immediate problem here, right? You know? I mean, but, but Jesus first says to him, your sins are forgiven, and then he says, hey, pick up your pallet and walk, right? Why does Jesus do it that way? Because guess what? That guy probably really did think, if I could just walk again, my goodness, I would, all my prayers would be answered. I would never be unhappy again. But yeah, wait two months wait two months, wait two weeks, right? He would, he would be dissatisfied again. So Jesus first touches his soul, then he touches his body. And, and that's the same thing with you and I, right? We don't just need to be forgiven, right? We, we have this deep soul sickness that needs to be healed. And what's the medicine? What's the medicine? It's Jesus Christ lifted up on the cross, bearing our poison. And how do we receive that medicine. How do we get it? The answer is, look. Look. Jesus directly correlates the medicine of Numbers 21 and how they got it to the medicine of the new birth. In other words, he says, as they looked and were saved, so look to me and be saved. Believe in me and be saved. Look. Look to the substitute and live. Now, what does that mean? Well, think of it for a second. How is looking the way we get the medicine. It's looking rather than doing. You see, it's looking rather than doing. First of all, go back to Numbers 21 for a second. How did they get the benefits of the bronze erbit? He says, all you have to do is look. He didn't say well, you have to go up and climb the serpent, right? Okay, you have to go up and climb the pole and like rub it three times, right? Okay, well, that was the case, like the still athletic and like half alive ones could do it, but the ones who were really far gone couldn't. You know, okay, even, even if he said, you have to walk, walk over and touch the serpent. Well, that might have been too much for some people. Some people might have been on their very last deathbed, right? It's like they can only move their eyes, you know, blink once for yes, blink twice for no, right? And so anybody can look. If someone was at the very extremity, paralyzed, only able to blink his eyes, even he can look. It's looking rather than doing. And you see, that's what it is to be born again. How did you get born did you, like, plan on it? You know, you were like, you know, this non-existence thing is kind of boring, right? You know, um, I just, uh, I think I'm going to be born in, like, two weeks, right? No, that didn't, that didn't happen, right? You, nobody ever planned to be born. We were not born through planning. You were not born through your own effort. You were not born through your planning or effort or performance. You are born through the labor, love, and pain of somebody else, and therefore, when you're born again, you get this medicine when you stop doing and start looking. You are born again through, through the labor, love, and pain of somebody else. It's by faith alone. It's by believing alone. And you see, the average person comes to church or tries to come to God and says, Okay, I want to find God. What do I have to do? Right? What do I have to do? tell me the five steps. Tell me the five easy steps to find God. What are the four spiritual laws? What are the three steps? What are the, you know, what are the best ways to f- live my best life now? What are, you know, they want steps. How, okay, so I got to come to church? Good. Okay, uh, I need to stop sleeping around? Oh, okay, all right. Uh, I need to stop taking drugs? All right. You know, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? What do I have to do? Right? But there has never been a better answer than in the autobiography of Charles Spurgeon, right? The Prince of Preachers, okay? Charles Spurgeon was a 19th century British preacher. And he was like a fifth generation preacher. He was a weird bookish guy. He grew up reading the Puritans from a little bitty kid. And he was actually doing some preaching and teaching, but he knew that he wasn't actually a Christian. And he he was a young man and he had grown up around Christianity. He had heard hundreds of sermons and he heard good theology. I mean, he read Puritans when he was a kid, right? He knew all this stuff, but he didn't get it. He didn't get it, and he was, he was sick in his soul and he didn't know what he had to do to be saved. And, I mean, Charles Spurgeon, when he was 23 years old, okay, when he was 23 years old, he was the pastor of the largest Christian church in the world, okay? Actually, in the history of the world up until that time. But when he was a young man, he was looking to find God, but he didn't understand. He couldn't get it. And so he was in this spiritual search mode, and he, he was on he started visiting different churches. Okay? And on January in 1850, he was trying to get to a church, but as he was walking there, there was this enormous snowstorm. And it was so huge that he couldn't get to where he wanted to go. And so he turned down a side alley and went into a primitive a primitive Methodist chapel. Ooh. And He says that when he got on there, he says when he got there, there was like only 12 people present because everybody had been snowed out. And even the pastor had been snowed out, right? So someone in the congregation said to some poor guy, you know, who had not prepared anything, he says, hey, uh, you go up and give the sermon, right? And Spurgeon said, this is what he actually said, I think he was a shoemaker or a tailor or something like that. So the man was just a normal guy, not a minister or a preacher, and he was told to just get up and preach. And so without any preparation whatsoever, he got up and turned in the Bible to Isaiah 45, 22. And the text was, Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. And so Spurgeon says, this is how he began. My dear friends, this is a simple text indeed. It says to be saved, we only need to look. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. You just need to look. And you needn't have gone to college to look. Even a child can look. You need to be worth a thousand pounds a year to look. Anyone can look. Ah, but the text says, look unto me. I now, many of you are looking unto yourselves. It ain't no use looking there. The text says, look unto me. And then Spurgeon said this, and the good man lifted up his arms to heavens and began to cry. The Lord says, the Lord says, look unto me. I'm a sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm a hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I'm a dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I'm a sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me. Spurgeon then says, After the good man had gone on for about 10 minutes like this, as long as he could, he noticed me sitting under the gallery, and with so few present, he recognized me to be a stranger. And fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, Young man, you look miserable, and you always will be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death until you obey my text." Young man, look. Look. Look to Jesus Christ. You have nothing to do but to look and live. And Spurgeon says, The blow struck home, and I saw at once the way of salvation. I knew not what else he said. I didn't take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. Like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed So it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things to find God, but when I heard that word look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked and looked and looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. Then and there, the clouds were gone. The darkness rolled away, and at that moment, I saw the sun. And I could have risen that very instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to Him. And now I can say, ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. See, the first thing you've got to see when someone comes and says, What do you want me to do? What are the rules? What do you want me to stop doing? What do I need to start what are the rules? Stop sleeping around? Start reading the Bible? Start going to church? What do you want me to do? You know, some people ask Jesus that exact question in John chapter six, verses twenty eight and twenty nine. They said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered, Is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent? That's the work of God. Believe in his son. Look to Jesus. So when someone says, what do I need to do? Here's another hymn for you. Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet, and stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. In other words, your whole life, you've been trusting in your own doing. Before, you were sinning, and now you're trying to be good. You were trusting in your doing before and you're trusting in your own doing now. Stop trusting in your doing and look to his doing. Look. Look. Look to Jesus Christ. And what's great about Numbers 21 is that the medicine wasn't, okay, now take this, get a lot of bed rest, and in two weeks you'll start to feel better. No, it was look and... You live. It was instantaneous. They were instantly healed. And that's how faith works. The moment you trust, you transfer your trust from all the other things that you've been building your life upon and you place it on Christ. You forsake all of the things that you've been finding your identity in, all the other things that have been your source of significance and value, and you trust in him. Not in your doing, but in his doing. And at that very moment, you live. And here's what is so cool is that the process keeps going. And guess what? You can always repeat step one. Look to Jesus, right? You mess up, just repeat step one. You're born again in an instant. You're born again again the moment you finally say, I'm born by the labor and suffering of someone else, not by anything I do. Uh, Father, accept me because what Jesus has done and let what he has done count for me. But the healing process goes on and on, right? There's this famous story of a, of a pretty important guy in church history. His name was Augustine. Maybe you've heard of him, right? He was a, uh, a bishop in the early church. He's one of the most famous and important people in church history. And Augustine is famous partially because before he was a Christian, he lived a life of Indulgence, Sexual promiscuity, all kinds of indulgence, and, but he eventually became a big leader in the church. But once, after he'd been a Christian for many years, one of his old flames saw him in a town square, and she threw herself at him. And she said, hey, Augustine, don't you recognize me? It's me. And whenever he didn't react the same way, right, she goes, Augustine, don't, don't you recognize me, Augustine? It's me. He said, I know, I know, but it's not me. <laughs> right she said it's me and he goes yeah I know but it's not me right and what he meant by that what that cute answer was is of course you're still you right but when you're born again the Bible says you're a, you're a new creation you're a new creature you're a new person And if it's true that salvation is not doing but looking, if it's true that salvation is not just simply subscribing to a certain set of teachings, but seeing what he has done, seeing him sweating great drops of blood, seeing him take the poison, and you saying, now I know my value. Now I know my worth. Now I know my salvation. Now I know my Savior. And as soon as you stop looking to anything else for the things that used to drive you and the things that used to define you and the things that used to elate you and deflate you and the things that used to drive your life, they don't have power over you anymore. They don't have power over you anymore. You're born again in that you're essentially living a new life. Your identity has been changed But it's not changed completely because things still too often affect us, right? We still too often are driven by the wrong things and react in wrong ways. And every time the cycle starts again, trouble, repentance, and looking to Jesus again. Trouble, repentance, and looking to Jesus again. Look to him and you'll find your identity is strengthened. Look to him and the healing continues. Look to him because you're a new person. And this is for non-Christians and for Christians alike. Because this is what it practically means to look to Jesus. You look to him for forgiveness and to satisfy the hunger of your soul. And instead of finding your identity and security in how you look or how you perform, you find your identity in Christ. Whatever you're frustra- Whenever you're frustrated with your spouse because they're not meeting your needs, they're not making you feel happy or they've let you down, look to Jesus. He's the ultimate spouse, right? I mean, not what the Bible says. We're the bride of Christ. Only he can satisfy the longings of your soul. Only he can meet the deepest needs you have for love and acceptance. Your spouse was not meant to fulfill the deepest longings of your heart, and we shouldn't expect them to. I mean, if you do that, you're asking them to be your savior, right? Jesus is the only savior. The unquenchable thirst inside of us that we try to fulfill with drugs and sex and human relationships and everything else can only be satisfied with God himself through Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus. That's for Christians and for non-Christians. The, Christians life, the Christian life is about looking to Jesus and believing the gospel every day. Some of you need to look to Jesus for the first time. Some of you need to do it for the thousandth time. If if you're not a Christian today, look to Jesus. If you have doubts today, look to Jesus. If you're confident today, look to Jesus. If you're lost today, look to Jesus and the poison will be taken away. There's one more thing I want to note here. This is this is actually really important. The lesson in Numbers twenty one worked. Okay, if you know anything about the book of Numbers and the people of Israel, it was this endless cycle of messing up and being judged. Messing up and being judged. Messing up and being judged. And it happened over and over again. But this is the last time. This time they actually get it. This is the generation that enters into the promised land under Joshua, right? And so... For decades, it was this endless cycle of complaining and punishment, but this is the end of it. This is the old generation ending and the new generation beginning. They've learned their lesson. These are the people who are going to inherit the land. They are going to overcome the Canaanites. They're not going to die in the desert. They're going to cross the Jordan River. They look and live, and they are a new people. They're a new generation, and they will enter and inherit the promised land, and so can you. Because the ultimate promised land is the new heaven's in the new earth, right? You don't have to die in this wilderness, right? If you look to Jesus, you can live. And I beg you today to look to Jesus. He says, look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for this amazing gospel that we are saved and we are forgiven, not because anything that we have done or could do, but because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. And I pray that we would not look to ourselves and not look to our spouse and not look to anything to save us, but that we would look to your son and be healed and be forgiven. Now we do it if we need to for the thousandth time. Now we thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' awesome name. Amen.